My dear brothers and sisters, we're reading in the first book of Kings about the reign of Ahab. And Ahab's father Omri begun, had begun the dynasty which Ahab um, has continued as we're just currently reading. Um, Omri had chosen the hill of Samaria to build his capital city there, no doubt on account of its strong position. Indeed, it became a very strong city as the centre of the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel. What we find out in our chapter for today from 1 Kings 21 that Ahab had a liking for Jezreel, perhaps on account of its pleasant situation. It was situated on a ridge at the eastern end of the plain of Jezreel. So it's located over a very fertile valley. And having been to that area, I can tell you that's the most fruitful area of Israel. It's always green, whereas the further south you go in Israel, it it becomes drier and drier. So he was overlooking that well-watered and fertile plain of Esdraelon, which to this day is a centre for agriculture for Israel. But it seems, as we find out from this chapter, that Ahab fancied some homegrown vegetables to add, no doubt, to his already um, well-stocked kitchen. And that brings us to the question of Naboth and his vineyard, which comes to our notice in this chapter. Presumably Naboth's vineyard was a fruitful vineyard, was one that he carefully tended. His name actually means fruits, by the way. And as we see, it was next to the palace that Ahab had built for himself at the city of Jezreel. On the face of it, it might seem fairly reasonable for Ahab to offer to buy Naboth's vineyard, but Naboth refused on the grounds that this was his ancestral inheritance. No doubt his forebears, Naboth's forebears, forebears, would have received this particular plot of ground where he now had this vineyard right back in the time when the land was allocated to the various families and, and the tribes in the time of Joshua and just after. Well, I suppose we might say that Naboth was taking a bit of a risk refusing the king the opportunity to buy his Um, vineyard but from Naboth's point of view he probably realised that Ahab had no intention of obeying the requirement under the law for that inheritance to be returned to its original owner in the year of Jubilee we might just have a look back at the book of Leviticus chapter 25 to see what it does say about land inheritance there under the law it's chapter 25 of the book of Leviticus and we pick it up at verse 23 where God says to Israel the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me and in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or, if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, 
Then let him count the years since its sale, and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have, restored, to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of jubilee, and in the jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. There's no doubt about it, Naboth had a right both to refuse to sell his ancestral inheritance, um, and certainly he would have had or should have had a right to have it restored to him at the very most 50 years later. And of course it could have been a lot less than that, depending when the next year of Jubilee came. Now Naboth was by all accounts, indeed we might say by the divine accounts, a godly man, observing the law himself and worshipping Yahweh, the true God. And indeed he invokes his name, as we find out in verse 3 of this chapter. He says, The Lord forbid, Yahweh forbid, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. I think it's probably implicit in the record that Naboth would have disapproved of Ahab's introduction of Baal worship, indeed we might say promotion of Baal worship in Israel, to the extent where those who worship the true God were persecuted. I suppose we might see what happens to Naboth as a bit of an element of persecution of one of the true believers. From his point of view, as I've said, he had every right to refuse, even a king, the opportunity to buy his ancestral inheritance. Probably, actually, he wasn't afraid of the rather weak character Ahab as a person. He just wished to have peace to tend his own inheritance, his own vineyard. He seems to have had no ambition at all other than that, unless it was to please God and obtain salvation by his faith. From Ahab's point of view, here was the rather pampered son of a king, used to getting his own way, obviously. And the fact is, Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard, rather like a spoiled child. This comes out very clearly in verse 4. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. I think we ought to ask ourselves the question, what are we like? Are we always wanting something that we don't already have? Do we want to keep up with the Joneses? We see next door has a new car. We see they've had an extension built. We want to have that. Are we always fretting when we don't get what we want? Or are we content with our lot like Naboth was? Paul wrote in one of his New Testament epistles that godliness with contentment is great gain. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. But despite the petulance of Ahab, Naboth might have won the day and got away with, with refusing to sell his vineyard, were it not for Jezebel, Ahab's pagan wife, which he'd no doubt married as a marriage of convenience, a political marriage, to cement a relationship with the, um, the Phoenician kingdom just to the north of Israel, which was a very important trading nation for Israel, and indeed throughout the, the ancient world. 
That brings us to consider Jezebel herself. I think when we do so, we begin to see why God had told Israel when they entered the land of Canaan to utterly destroy the Canaanites, the Baal worshippers, and not to give them any mercy or truck whatsoever. We can clearly see from the behaviour of Jezebel that the worship of Baal didn't appear to provide any moral restraint whatsoever. Ahab, as a Jew, should have known the Ten Commandments, and thou shalt covet, not covet, is one of them, of course. He probably had some idea about them, but it's clear that Jezebel had none. If she knew at all about them, she treated them with total contempt. And so we find Jezebel agreeing that Ahab should covet, which broke the Tenth Commandment, and she deliberately engaged in false accusation against Naboth, which broke the Ninth Commandment, and then she committed murder by proxy proxy, and thus broke the Seventh Commandment. So three of the Ten Commandments were broken as a result of the bad things done to Naboth. It's quite probable that Ahab himself would not have used such ruthless and lawless methods against Naboth unless Jezebel had instigated them. However, as far as God was concerned, Ahab was complicit because he allowed Jezebel to do these things in his name and then he went along with it when he found that Naboth was dead, as we find out from verse 15. It came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And it comes out in a later chapter that Naboth's sons were also killed at this time, so that they couldn't in- inherit that vineyard and that would give Ahab the opportunity to take it uh, for himself I think there's a great lesson that comes out immediately from this incident dear brothers and sisters Naboth was a helpless victim of Jezebel's unscrupulous and cruel scheming The elders and nobles of Jezreel were also complicit, presumably out of fear of Jezebel, in what happened. And Ahab was also complicit in that he allowed these wicked things to be done in his name and didn't take a stand against them, but rather went along with them. I think the lesson immediately for ourselves is that if we ever become the victims of injustice in this life or are downed, because of our faith or because of standing up for our principles, we need have no fear because there is one who sees and judges. And God clearly saw what happened to Naboth and judged. Interestingly, God had actually seen much other wickedness carried out by Jezebel and Ahab already. Jezebel had killed all the prophets of Yahweh with the exception of Elijah, as we find out in an earlier chapter. And at that point, God had not yet pronounced judgment upon the house of Ahab. And when Elijah succeeded in converting Israel back to God on Mount Carmel, when there was that trial there between the worshippers of Baal and Elijah, God allowed Jezebel to succeed in stopping that process. 
and she threatened Elijah so that he had to flee into the wilderness and it all seemed to come to nothing. God allowed that to happen. And at that point, he didn't pronounce judgment on the house of Ahab. But when Ahab and Jezebel carry out these wicked deeds upon Naboth and upon his family, then God decided to act. Verse 17 of this chapter. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Ahab reacts by saying to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Ahab considered Elijah his enemy, although Elijah was actually telling him the truth and was warning him that he'd engaged in some very wicked acts in the sight of God. Indeed, when Elijah earlier at Mount Carmel had sought to bring the people back to the true God, had sought to bring Ahab back to the true God, he was actually doing what was really in Ahab's best interests. But it's clear that Ahab couldn't bear to be rebuked by Elijah. And so Elijah answers him, I have found you because you sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'll bring calamity on you. I'll take away your posterity. I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahiah, because of the provocation with which you provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. You might say an uncompromising and dire judgment indeed pronounced against the house of Ahab. It's clear that at this point enough was enough with what God saw done to Naboth. A very important point, I think, that comes out from a consideration of this incident is that God wanted Israel to uphold his law, symbolised by those Ten Commandments. And as we've seen in this incident, three prominent ten of the three prominent commandments there had been definitely broken. And this was Ahab, the leader of Israel, setting the example to the people, treating the Ten Commandments with contempt. And so an uncompromising judgment is pronounced upon him and upon Jezebel. And yet, nevertheless, we see that God always tempers judgment with mercy. Verse 27. So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I'll bring the calamity on his house. Amazing, isn't it, that God should so change that judgment 
because Ahab humbled himself. And it's not, I don't think, here telling us that Ahab completely changed his way. In the very next chapter we find him once again treating the prophet of the Lord Micaiah with contempt and uh, consulting the prophets of Baal whether he should go up to Ramoth Gilead or not. So Ahab wasn't really changing his ways. He was just repenting perhaps of the bad things that he'd done to Naboth. And he was sorry, of course, that God had judged him in the way that he had by the mouth of Elijah. Nevertheless, as I've said, God showed mercy upon these signs of repentance on the part of Ahab. In the next chapter, of course, we find the judgment on the house of Ahab beginning to be fulfilled. Ahab comes to a premature end after the battle with the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead and the dogs licked up his blood, but not in Jezreel, that was actually in Samaria. And some people have said, oh, that's falsified the prophecy, hasn't it? It said that the dogs will lick up his blood at Jezreel, but no. It tells us at the end of the chapter that God had commuted the judgment so that it would only take place in the days of his son. So when we come to look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, and we find Jehu, at the instigation of God, um, rebelling against the house of Ahab and bringing judgment on Jehoram, we see the fulfilment of these words, of this prophecy. 2 Kings chapter 9. And we pick it up at verse 30. Sorry, verse 24. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidka, his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. As I said, his sons were killed as well, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. So the prophecy was fulfilled and the judgment came in the days of his son. And we find Jezebel suffering the exact fate foretold by Elijah. And there was no mercy extended to her. Verse 30 of this chapter. Now when Jehu had come to Jezebel, had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Verse 33. Jehu said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he'd gone in, he ate and drank. Then he said, Go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him. And he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. So we see that even the dogs could not eat the head, the feet and the hands of Jezebel. Her thoughts, her wicked thinking, 
a wicked deed symbolised by feet and hands that engage in activity was so bad that even the dogs couldn't eat it. There are obviously many lessons in the negative from the bad examples of Ahab and Jezebel, particularly about the need for us to know, to revere and to uphold the divine standards of behaviour, as we sang in that hymn a moment ago, hymn 5. But rather than leaving this incident on this rather tragic and sad note, I'd like finally for us to consider it as something of an acted parable, which I suspect it probably is. We find in the Old Testament that Israel are depicted as God's vineyard in many passages, Psalm 80 for example. And God says in those parables that he cast out the Canaanites, the nations, as Naboth's forebears had done, they had to fight for the land, didn't they, to cast out the nations. And God had planted Israel as, quote, a noble vine. God had tended it and watered it, and he looked for it to bring forth fruit in his service. Again, Naboth and his forebears, father to son, father to son, handing it down, generation after generation, had tended and watered that vineyard at Jezreel, the ancestral inheritance of their family. It was finally handed down by his father to the son Naboth. And so we find on the spiritual plane that God handed his vineyard on to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sought in his day to bring it back from a neglected state into one of fruitfulness. In both cases, the vineyard was coveted by others. As Ahab, Israel's leader, coveted Naboth's vineyard, so Israel's leaders of Christ's day coveted his inheritance. And they hated him because he stood up for the principles of divine law, as Naboth did in his day. Their righteous deeds exposed the hypocrisy of those who coveted the vineyards and who failed to uphold divine law. So as Naboth took a stand upon God's law, and this is contrasted with Ahab's ignorance of it and contempt for it, so in the days of Christ, the leaders of Israel coveted the inheritance, didn't they? They didn't want a rival, they didn't want Christ to become the king and take away their positions of power. And they were prepared to trample upon the law and treat it with contempt in order to maintain their hold upon it. In both cases there was false accusation, just as Naboth was conspired against and falsely accused by Ahab and Jezebel with the complicit rulers of Jezreel helping it along. In the days of Christ, the rightful inheritor of God's vineyard was conspired against and falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders and handed over to the Gentiles who were complicit in that false accusation and the false trial that followed. So just as Naboth was cruelly put to death after a mockery of a trial, we now remember the one who was also cruelly put to death 
after false accusation and a mockery of a trial. But in both cases, as we've seen, God saw and he judged. Ahab and Jezebel were sentenced to defeat before their enemies and ignominious deaths. The Jews that murdered our Lord were defeated by their enemies, the Romans, and their temple and their city were ultimately destroyed. That was a judgment of God for their wickedness in mistreating and murdering God's Son. But Jesus was vindicated after three days and granted eternal life. Naboth likewise was vindicated in the words of Elijah, at the mouth of at, uh, the words of God through through Elijah, and he too will rise to eternal life. So where does this leave us, dear brothers and sisters? Well, we are we today are workers in God's vineyard, which is His ecclesia, and it's for us to tend it, to encourage it, to bring forth fruit to the glory of His name. And indeed to sow the seed wherever we can, even outside in the world, that where it might again bring forth fruit to God's glory. And as we engage in work in our Lord's vineyard, we believe that whether we are acknowledged, whether we receive any reward now or not, it doesn't matter. Because we too are being observed and judged by God, and we believe that we will be vindicated if we uphold his law and work in his service, and likewise receive the reward of his grace, eternal life, at the coming of Christ.